Okay, so today I'm really happy to welcome on the show Chairman and CEO of Marathon Digital Holdings, Fred Thiel. Welcome, Fred. So uh, we describe Marathon as a listed digital asset technology platform that mines cryptocurrencies with a focus on the blockchain ecosystem and the generation of digital assets. The ticker is Mara. Clearly, a good reason to be talking to somebody who is, you know, focused on Bitcoin specifically, but you know, digital assets more broadly, and in particular, somebody that is in the US, that is listed in the US in TradFi markets, but offering exposure into into the world world of digital assets. Lots to talk about there, uh, both in terms of the industry and 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 specifically, you know, how, how Mara is looking to kind of get exposure. To allow exposure to, to um, the values being created, but also you're a fascinating founder and um, got a really interesting background, notwithstanding, of course, the IPO and, and, and Mara itself. So maybe before we get into what Mara is and, and your view on the world, it'd be great to get some context to you and your background. I've been in technology for about 40 years, um, which sounds like uh, from the day they invented the abacus, but... Uh, <laughs> My uh, first forays into technology industry were, um, I went to high school in England in London. My uh, father uh, decided, you know, you really seem interested in this tech stuff. He worked in a bank in the city in London. And he said, why don't uh, I get you um, an internship in the uh, IT department? Then they called it the systems department. And, uh, you know, in those days, you were a real productive programmer if you could... Um, get one run of your program a day, uh, and then you had to wait for hours to get this, essentially a printout, which was what's called a dump, a hexadecimal mapping of memory in the computer when your program failed, and you figure out what went wrong. And we were writing in Assembler and uh, RPG and these other languages. Um, but that got me hooked and um, went from there to uh, a much bigger bank in Sweden, where I went to, um, I was studying at the Stockholm School of Economics, and um, was working now with much bigger systems and uh, got involved in a project to do some real-time computing with some of the first ATMs, uh, the bank card systems that were uh, deployed there. I started as a, a sales engineer and very quickly became a salesperson and uh, moved to the dark side away from engineering and uh, just kept loving selling technology and what you could do with technology. And then, you know, ended up working, uh, the PC came out and uh, left the mini computer world and uh, started a company with some friends to represent some of the early um, PC peripheral manufacturers in Scandinavia, the American companies. And then that kind of grew and exited that business, uh, went back into the enterprise software business for banks and um, worked with uh, some folks in Latin America uh, on one of the first systems using PCs where you could essentially as a treasurer and a corporate treasurer, dial into the mainframe with your PC where you had your accounting system and get access to real-time floats and letters of credit and what was going on with your bank. And then uh, ended up in the U.S. Um, shortly thereafter and um, started a company, co-founded a company to build uh, some of the early Ethernet adapter technology and then went to the storage industry after that, built RAID adapters. And uh, then uh, from there, um, my first real CEO gig uh Took a company called Lantronics public in 2000, um, 
around the concept of connecting intelligent devices to networks. Think the Internet of Things. Just we didn't call it that in the day. And um, very successful company, took it public in 2000, did a secondary in 2001, and um, kind of retired in 2002 um, at way too young of an age. And um, then got involved in the uh, digital media business and was asked um, by the founders of a company called GameSpy to essentially uh, help them kind of figure out an exit strategy for the company. And um, over a course of a year, grew that company pretty substantially. And um, we built, uh, we had two kind of businesses. One was uh, managed uh, 450 media websites, if you would, that talked about video games. Um, each different game had its own media site. But we operated the back uh, office network, if you would, that controlled all multiplayer games. And uh, that was hugely successful. Exited that company um, very successfully for the owners. And then 18 months later, that company sold again for 10 times what, they had, <laughs> what the owners had exited for. So it was one of these double whammy, great exits. Retired again. Um, did some venture investing and started sitting on a bunch of boards, uh, was asked to join a private equity firm as a managing partner. And uh, back in about 2015, started looking at crypto really as something that was interesting. I came from a family of people who worked in banks. My stepmother had been a senior economist at the OECD responsible for banking regulation. And when Soviet Union fell apart, her job was to bring Russia's financial systems create the financial institutions in Russia so they could join the OECD and then the EU. And so I grew up on this kind of banking regulation and um, saw what Bitcoin was kind of doing, which was really interesting and thought, you know, this is the solution to SWIFT and all these arcane payment systems that I had lots of experience in from having worked in the banking world and um, thought, you know, what's the play here? And uh, you know, the biggest challenge in Bitcoin back then was there were no fiat on ramps. And more importantly, it was really there was this huge arbitrage opportunity between what was going on in Japan, South Korea, US and other places. And uh, if there was a way to unify the order books of these exchanges so you could trade in one place with one account on all those exchanges, that would be really cool. But having come from a family of people in the regulatory business also knew that you needed to get a license to do this or else you we're going to get into all sorts of trouble. And having run public companies kind of had been familiar with um, the SEC and those institutions. About that time, a good friend of mine, um, and this is ties into Marathon, had been asked to uh, become CEO of a company called Marathon Patent Group. And Marathon, as a public company, has existed and has had many lives. Uh, it was originally started as a vanadium mining company, real minerals. Failed at that. Um, then they decided to go into the oil and gas business. Failed at that. Then they went, decided to go into the um, real estate business. Failed at that. And then another group of people took over the company, as often happens with public shells, and um, acquired a bunch of patents. One of the patents was the basic underlying patent for how Siri and Alexa work. It's basically a patent that is defined around the concept of uh, a limited instruction set that's delivered by voice for controlling an electronic device. So it's about as basic a patent for voice control of electronics as you can get. Um, Marathon had sued Apple. Apple eventually paid a license after many millions of dollars of legal fees. Um, Marathon then thought, oh, well, we'll just go sue Amazon. Well, 
different proposition. And um, interestingly, uh, you know, that case is still ongoing. But basically, Marathon burned through all their money. And so uh, they had to uh, borrow some money, had some very bad balance sheet. They were in all sorts of kind of financial troubles and asked a friend of mine to come in as CEO and um, put the company into a new business. And uh, the idea was to go into Bitcoin mining because that had um, just started. This is now 2017. Uh, had started becoming something really interesting. So I joined the board of Marathon in 2018. We had to first fix the balance sheet, which we did. We had to first get some miners, uh, eventually started building some capital. And then in 2020, we started uh, being able to really raise money. And we raised a few hundred million dollars in 2020 and then a billion dollars in 2021. And so in April of 2021, I stepped in as CEO. He became chairman of the board. And I started building out the team, and I think I was employee number four or five. Um, and the rest is history. You know, we um, raised a lot of money. We're very uh, had you know very good timing, and when we raised money, did it at a very low cost. Um, we had uh, a stock that had lots of liquidity in it, so there was a lot of float. It was very easy to do share offerings, which made it easy to raise money. Uh, you know, we essentially had. You know, I think $10 million of annual revenues, and we had raised almost $2 billion of equity and debt, and overnight kind of became one of the leaders in the industry. And then we had to deploy those miners, get the sites, get the mining operations up and running. And here we are today, we're almost at 23 exahash of capacity, the largest miner uh, of the publicly traded miners in the world both by market cap and by capacity. Wow. Well, I think marathon is uh, quite a fitting uh, uh, term for what you just <laughs> got in there. Um, you, you, couldn't have, uh, you couldn't have named it better. And I know that you're part of the y YPO network as well, right? So YPO, good friends of ours. Um, so that, that's also good to see. I mean, there's a lot there. So on the, on the one hand, like before we get into Bitcoin, you know, understanding being a public listed company in the US, operating in the world of digital assets and, and your unique insight in a regulatory sense, given you come from a family of regulators or at least people that interact with regulators. I'm 20 years a founder, 10 years in crypto. I'm struggling. Um, and uh, I, I know you've had two failed attempts or aborted attempts at retirement. I'm feeling... I might be a little too old for, for crypto and Web3. People talk about crypto time and the pace of it and everything else. How do you keep up? Yeah, I think for one thing, it, you've got to really have a passion for what you do. And, you know, while that might sound trite and, you know, oh, uh, you know, passion project and all that. I, listen, I love building businesses. It's something I'm passionate about. Um, more importantly, I love building teams. And you can't build a business without building a team. And, um, you know, my sort of goal in life is always to build the best team I can possibly build, imbibe them with a vision and motivate them to execute that vision and then step back, let them do that and figure out what we have to do next. And um, that's how we built, you know, Marathon um, very much. And, you know, what I love about Marathon is it really is kind of like a startup. You know, I had the opportunity to basically hire everybody on the team, create the culture, um, and our vision has evolved and, you know, it's continuing to evolve. Uh, you know, we built a huge tech stack. Now we're differentiated that way. Uh, you know, we were one of the first, uh, us miners to go offshore. We did this great 
project in UAE with the largest sovereign wealth fund there, um, which is all immersions, the first site that's fully immersion and uh, is operated with very, very few engineers or uh, technicians at all. It's pretty much a hands-free site, all done with remote control. Um, And so I love doing those things. I love bringing innovative technologies to bear, whether it was the IoT stuff back in the day, whether it was PCs when they came out, uh, the internet, ad tech, whatever it is. I've always, you know, crypto, the same thing. Um, you know, Bitcoin's a bit unique also because um, the it, I look at Bitcoin like I looked at the internet when I was in the Ethernet and data comms world. Uh, it's this enabling technology. Uh, you know, I don't look at Bitcoin as a product. I look at Bitcoin as an ecosystem and as a solution to all sorts of problems in the world, not just financial services and speeding up financial transactions and creating decentralized ownership, the ability to tokenize things. But I look at it as foundational as the internet. And um, I'm very excited about all the things that are going to get built on top of it at layer two and layer three and beyond, just like the internet. The internet works successfully now after arguably 50 years of operation and Leonard Kleinrock, who was one of the co-inventors of kind of the TCP IP code that initially went into it and built the first router, um, was a gentleman that I knew in LA. He was a professor at UCLA. And um, he talked about the internet always as the internet works because it's simple. It's just TCP IP. That's it. Everything else is built on top of it. It's not programmable. You don't have to evolve it at all. It'll keep running. Um, and that's what's really basic. And that's what I love about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the most secure decentralized network in the world. And that's all it does. And everything else you want to do, you build on top of it. Um, you know, Ethereum, I think, solved some very interesting challenges. Um, but because of its programmability, uh, it's very complex. And so that makes it harder to, uh, on the one hand, um, keep standardized. You know, they're constantly evolving. It's constantly changing because they have to keep changing the code. Bitcoin hasn't really evolved other than Taproot and some other EIPs, um, <clears throat> some other BIPs, I mean, uh, in uh, through its history, really, just like the internet. We're still running, the vast majority of nodes on the internet still run TCP IP v4, which is arguably, you know, 30 years old plus. So uh, that's why I'm a big believer in the fact that I think that um, you know, something basic that just doesn't break and is perfectly secure, um, at least to date, uh, is the best basis on which and foundation to build everything else on. So that's what I really love about Bitcoin. Um, I, I think when you look at founding companies or being a founder and being an entrepreneur, um, you need to continually reinvigorate your excitement. And the way to do that for me is through discovery. It's Constantly asking the question, what else? What else? And I am not, you know, my area of expertise is not in writing code. It's not in um, figuring out exactly what the marketing spin on something is going to be or how to manufacture something as cheaply as possible. My area of expertise is building teams and just asking lots of questions. And, you know, if I'm busy doing detailed work like filling out people's time reports or looking at expense reports, I'm doing the wrong job. And what keeps me excited is the ability to just keep being curious. And my, I've mentored a lot of founders, um, both in YPO and outside of YPO and, and uh, 
in my private equity days, you know, had lots of CEOs reporting to me. Um, and what I always tell them is you've got to be curious, you know, ask questions. The best way to get people to do things is just ask them a question. You know, it's like, don't tell somebody, Hey, this should be this way. It's, Hey, what's a better way of doing this? You know, what else could you do? You know, how could you make it better? How could you make it faster? How could you make it cheaper? Um, you know, a mantra that I've always had for uh, CEOs uh, is, you know, what can you accelerate? What can you automate? What can you anticipate? Right? Just ask questions about those three things and you'll have a full day of work. Uh, and you know, you'll get people doing things that really drive that progress of the business forward. Well, Fred, I mean, it sounds like I, I might need to tap you up for some, uh, <laughs> some mentorship. Uh, you, you both uh, inspired me and depressed me. So you basically told me I'm never going to be able to retire because I'm, I'm basically going to be constantly curious. That's going to keep bringing me back into the mix, which is a bit depressing. But at the same time, I guess we just need to accept reality, right? If you're, if you're wired that way, you, you're just going to keep getting sucked into these things. And at the end of the day, if you look at your background, you know, economics, financial services, peer-to-peer, internet, um, and kind of these baseline protocols, it's almost inevitable. You're not going to miss out on Web3, are you? You're not going to miss no. out. <laughs> To let that one uh, slide while you're playing golf. So I think we we got a, a good understanding of of why you're here. So maybe let's talk about specifically, you know, what you're doing at Marathon, talked in in, in in terms of that that kind of journey. But like how you're looking at the next, you know, one year, three years. You know, what horizon do you even operate on? Because there's a lot of unknowns. How are you finding navigating? the US now, you know, being a mm-hmm. public company in, in TradFi, but giving exposure to digital assets. Do you think, I mean, you know, bear in mind we're 22nd of June and market sentiment felt very different even a week ago yeah. versus now where everyone seems to be launching an ETF and, and um, you know, we, we, we've kind of had this mini rally. So, you know, where are you guys at? How do you navigate or plan for the future? And especially in the context of being a U.S. listed entity, you know, being listed in the U.S., um, we have the benefit that we're a Bitcoin pure play. So, from the eyes of the SEC, we're a commodity. We operate in a market that's not regulated by the SEC relative to the the commodity we're mining. Um, and the CFTC and even the IRS have all agreed on how they're going to deal with Bitcoin. Um, and hopefully even the uh, Financial Services Advisory Board, the uh, FASB, uh, or I think I got the, the order wrong on the letters there, but FASB that determines how people account for things has even decided now that yeah, Bitcoin is actually just going to be viewed as property. And so you'll be able to market to market, which, by the way, is a much more important thing than ETFs. And I'll get into that in a minute. Um, so from a perspective of the SEC, as a public company, we obviously are regulated by the SEC from our disclosures and all that. And um, what's been very interesting is while, yes, we suffered with the issue around banking and access to banking, uh, whether you call it choke point 2.0 or whether you just call it a crisis that happened at a handful of banks because you've enabled bank depositors to move money using their smartphones, you know, no longer do you have to queue up at the bank (laughs) and get bags of money, uh, which they may run out of. Now you move $40 billion with the click of your finger on your smartphone. So bank runs are now 
even worse in that sense. Um, but uh, so we've been affected by all those things. Uh, but uh, really with the SEC, it's more uh, teaching them and helping them understand how do you account for this thing called Bitcoin, right? When you mine a Bitcoin, um, you know, ideally they want you to be able to recognize the revenue the minute you win the block. Well, if you're in a third party pool, you're not winning blocks. The pool is winning blocks and you're just getting paid. So you just recognize the revenue when you get paid. But then now the pool needs to be accounting for the revenue as a principal operator, <laughs> as opposed to just an agent. And so th these accounting issues become very complex issues. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time helping the folks at the SCC understand how to do these things, how we do them. And then, you know, they then tell us, well, you should do it this way. And then we all agree on something at the end. Um, so there's a lot of interaction there, um, also just with the accounting boards. But back to um, this rally we're seeing and uh, my comment about FASB. So um, the Bitcoin industry tends to move on rumors and sells off on the news, just like, you know, Apple's going to announce a product, the stock goes up, and once they've announced it, it goes down a little bit. Um, didn't really do it this time, but uh, that's what it's historically done. Uh, the Bitcoin market tends to move that way as well. And it's all about adoption. Oh, if BlackRock is going to get an ETF and maybe Valkyrie and maybe GBTC will convert to an ETF, then there'll be huge adoption. Millions of people will come in to it. And while, yes, that's possible, the challenge is that until you as a financial institution, an invest, you know, an institutional investor can account for Bitcoin as an asset that's marked to market, meaning at the end of every quarter, when you report to your investors, you report the value of the Bitcoin in your balance sheet. Up until now, Bitcoin has always been accounted for as a long-lived intangible asset, which means you can only impair it. You can only mark it down in value. If you look at our balance sheet, for example, we hold over 12,000 Bitcoin in our balance sheet. We hold it at the lowest value Bitcoin has ever been. Because every time Bitcoin drops in value below the price we paid for it, we have to mark it down. If we had mark to market, then we would value the Bitcoin based on what it's actually worth in the market today. And so if you talk about what is going to drive adoption in Bitcoin, it's going to be when FASB in January, hopefully, gets approval and companies can now account for how they hold Bitcoin as instead of, as property that will allow all sorts of institutions now to own Bitcoin. And that's why that's more important than an ETF. Because the challenge with an ETF is, um, you know, they will buy and sell Bitcoin based on their deposits. People buy, then they have to buy Bitcoin to get, keep their NAV level. <clears throat> so that causes some volatility in the market. But if institutions can just do mark to market, they can hold the Bitcoin directly. So now they can go in the spot market, which is much more important for our industry because it drives broader adoption of platforms. It draws broader adoption of custody. Uh, it drives broader adoption of transacting in Bitcoin, which increases transaction fees, which is critical to miners because as you know, we operate our business thinking about Bitcoin having cycles every four years, the mining subsidies that we get, the block subsidies are halved. And the game plan and the hope that the industry operates under is that transaction fees will eventually get to a point where they're higher than the block subsidies. And we actually did have with the ordinals rush back in May, 
you know, you saw the numbers we produced and other miners produced, you know, there were some blocks where the transaction fees were actually greater than the block subsidy that were won. <clears throat> That's what the future for Bitcoin mining looks like, ideally, uh, in an ideal world. But we have to get there. And to get there, we have to drive lots of adoption. To drive adoption, we have to have, has to be easy to account for it. Hence the FASB thing. You have to have ETFs. You have to have financial institutions like NASDAQ, Fidelity, Schwab, and others offer custody and offer trading so that people can, can use it and people feel comfortable with it. Um, and I think what you're seeing now is, you know, the altcoins kind of got hammered by some of this SEC activity and fear that they're all securities. And so you're seeing Bitcoin dominance come back. You know, Bitcoin, you know, was touching at 50% dominance uh, this week. And I think between Bitcoin and Ethereum, those are really long term, the only uh, crypto assets you're really going to see. There'll be some stable coins, but I think they'll have to be regulated like banks. Certainly what Europe is looking to do with it and the US, it's going to be regulated. They'll have to be banking products. So, But we look at cycles of these four-year having cycles and two of the years are good, two of the years are tough. And so we plan for how are we going to allocate capital in those various phases of the, when do we grow? When don't we grow? Things like that. And look, I mean, everything is predicated on those cycles anyway. So if you're looking at altcoins, you know, it all operates in, in four-year cycles, ultimately um, relative to, to what's going on in, in, in Bitcoin. So similarly, you know, we, we, we operate on the same premise, if it not just indirectly. So earlier you mentioned like the success of something like TCIP is its simplicity, its, its uh, permanent simplicity in a way. And I think it's really interesting insight into just looking at the importance of accounting treatment uh, to the to the success of Bitcoin. But at the same time, we talk about ordinals. It'd be interesting to get your perspective on layer twos in the context of Bitcoin. So the range of application of Bitcoin mm -hmm. and the implications of layer twos, because in theory, that creates complexity. So I, I don't know how you how you think about that in, in terms of Bitcoin. Yeah, so back to the internet analogy. Uh, email runs on um, SMTP, which is a layer two protocol. Web pages work on HTTP. It's a layer two protocol. To the novice, yeah, gosh, HTTP is complicated. But once you figure out it's just a language that reside that lets you do what you do and lets you abstract um, content, display content, and control how web pages are served, um, you figure it out. And then all these tools appear that make it super easy today. And now you have things like Squarespace, where you log onto a website. And in five minutes, you've got a beautiful website that you can sell your photographs off, where before it took $5 million, a bunch of programmers, and you had to do a lot of work. Bitcoin is still in that, you know, $5 million, lots of programmers world, where if you're going to build something. Uh, in the near future, uh, I'm very optimistic that building layer twos will be as simple as um, in the Bitcoin world, as essentially you will use a um essentially what we call side chains as opposed to a layer two but you will essentially use a blockchain which is like a clone of the bitcoin blockchain um and you will record transactions there uh whether they're financial transactions whether it's a, just a data storage <clears throat> so if you think about ordinals you know the, the challenge with ordinals is they compete with financial transactions for the block space and that's what drove transaction fees high uh, and ordinals were many times 
essentially just graphic images. Well, you could have a side chain where instead of, you know, a four megabyte or two megabyte block space, you could have a gigabyte of block space per block. And you could have, you know, whole movies in it. And then every block hash, instead of having to do proof of work or proof of stake, you're simply recording that hash on the Bitcoin blockchain, on the base layer. So now every transaction, every block on your block, your side chain is anchored in the security of the Bitcoin blockchain. And so you don't need to do proof of work. You don't need to do proof of stake. You just simply decide what are the characteristics and parameters I need in my blockchain. And then um, that is then secured uh, in, in the Bitcoin blockchain. So we're very active in designing technology to make that easier, remove the friction. Go back to those three A-letter words I used before. How do you automate, accelerate, and anticipate? If we can build tools that remove all the friction from implementing and adopting something, then there's a much higher likelihood people will adopt it, right? If you think about NFTs on Ethereum and OpenSea and MetaMask, you know, it's, it's still complicated. It's not easy, right? So the, whoever comes up with the tools that makes it drop that easy to just go in and say, hey, I want to create um, a sidechain to record um, you know, images of classic cars that are Bentleys from the 1930s. And that will be the repository of photos um, for the future um, and the history of each car and the provenance and all that. That sidechain may eventually have some value, right? Uh, the art community is certainly looking at this as a way to record provenance of paintings and artwork. Uh, coin traders, uh, you know, physical uh, coins like gold coins, silver coins, etc. Look at it as a way to do it. Wine is now starting to be traded using blockchain technologies where you can track the provenance of wines. And if you can make it really easy for people to use these blockchains, so it's so abstracted that you're not even thinking about it, A, being a blockchain and B, having to create something, you just like you create a page on Facebook, create an account, I want to track wine, here are kind of the characteristics I want to track, and bingo it's operated, then you'll see adoption. And that will drive more and more adoption. And that's why I think Bitcoin being a fully decentralized network, where the base layer never changes, that means everything you build on top of it <clears throat> can be built with the understanding that, hey, I'm not going to have to go in and all of a sudden rework what I did because a base layer change was implemented. Whereas in Ethereum, every time they do a fork, it's a fork. And everybody, every layer above it has to worry about that. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I think um, Bitcoin dominance is back. And uh, I think at the same time, the ecosystem's that much more mature now, um, especially, as you say, in, in the context of sidechains. Ordinals was great to see, you know, I think it allows Bitcoin and Bitcoiners to revisit, you know, colored coins and, and, and going beyond uh, the kind of limitations of, of just thinking of Bitcoin in a very, very narrow context of digital gold or something like that. So we're certainly very excited about it. And I think what's great, you know, often we've got relatively young founders on, on the podcast, first time founders, maybe second time founders. And even though they may have a background in computer science, you know, technically know the theory, the reality is it's not applied. Mm -hmm. um, you see a lot of the same kind of assumptions or, or false assumptions kind of repeating out or hubris. Not a bad thing, um, 
But I, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to have a few guests on the show, notwithstanding uh, Mark S. Miller, you know, people that have been involved in, in the very early internet. And it's always really exciting to see people like him and yourself excited about crypto. I think it's a, a great point of validation that, you know, you could be doing a number of things now, notwithstanding retirement, and, and yet you're here in the space contributing, bringing credibility. So thanks for your, your kind of contribution. I think I know it will bring um, some reassuring context to a lot of first-time founders that are exposed for the first time to that four-year cycle um, and having endured, you know, 2022. So thanks for coming on the show. I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're 40 minutes in now. I uh, could speak to you for, for much longer. Um, but super excited to um, to see what you guys are doing over there. Maybe to close off, as we look forward over the next 12 months, obviously you could argue there's been a regulatory low in the context of the US. Other jurisdictions, you know, your, your own uh, UK home on this little island, rainy island that we're on here, um, have been opportune. You know, Hong Kong is, is kind of now opening back up again. How do you think the US is going to compete um, over the next years in the context of crypto and Bitcoin? I think we are going to see the pendulum swing, uh, but not the way most people expect it to swing. When it comes to crypto's interaction in the financial markets, uh, while I don't agree with how the regulators in the US have approached it, I think the Europeans with the Mika legislation or the UK and how they're approaching it, um, is a much healthier way of doing it, where you're being proactive and creating an environment where uh, you're uh, defining for innovators kind of a framework in which they can operate, sandbox, if you would. Um, the U.S. approach was one, well, we already have rules, so fit within the rules, but we really don't even want you to be here, so we're not going to make it easy. So this is where politics and regulation kind of got convoluted. <clears throat> the good thing is that there's an election every four years on the executive branch and in Congress, it's every two years in the House of Representatives. And so I think what you're seeing now is in the U.S., uh, a growing sense amongst uh, members of Congress and certainly at the state level that, you know, that, hey, this whole Bitcoin thing's actually maybe a good thing. It helps us empower energy markets. There's a national security aspect to it, which we could do a whole show on, talk about that. Um, there's an aspect of financial inclusivity that's very important. You have dollar dominance declining in the world and Bitcoin is the only settlement um, currency that would never be controlled by any one nation and hence therefore that's the best option because it's apolitical and can't be controlled <clears throat> so i think it's a question of education you know the the unfortunate thing is you had ftx you had uh, celsius you had three arrows capital and uh as you know um because the uk often operates this way as well um oh shit something happened the populists are screaming, politicians need to do something, take out the hammer, let's bang some head, bang, 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 bang. We'll put out some legislation, put out this fire, and we can get back to doing what we were doing before. That's kind of what has happened here. It's, you know, damn it, you got to fix this problem, regulators, go do something about it. And um, I'm oversimplifying it and being quite flip about it. But, um, you know, that's essentially what's happened. It's an overreaction. Uh, and dealing with a problem nobody wanted to have to deal with initially because they thought it was going to go away. Now, 
how is it going to resolve itself? Well, what's going to happen is the incumbent financial institutions are going to end up dominating the space when it comes to the financial services aspect. Why? The regulators trust them. The regulators know they know how to operate without screwing things up. Not that that doesn't happen. We just had a banking crisis and people running those banks were known operators. Um, but it's a safer world for the regulators uh, to operate in. And so I think on the financial side, that's what we're going to see. Once we see calm in the financial markets around uh, Bitcoin and Ether, I don't think we're going to see calm regarding stable coins or other things for some time in the US. Uh, now, all of a sudden, people will feel comfortable that, okay, if there's clarity about how a, um, a crypto-based product needs to look and feel to not be considered a security, I know what I can do. And so uh, I can go build stuff. And now innovation can start. You know, the, in the US, it used to work the other way around. It was, and I think you're starting to see it with how AI is, how the US is looking at regulating AI. They're taking this proactive approach as similar to Europe, as opposed to the laissez-faire thing with crypto, because they really wished it would go away. And it didn't. And it became too big. And then they had to regulate it. So I think what we're going to see is the incumbents will take over uh, the financial services side of it. Yes, Coinbase will survive. Gemini may or may not survive. Um, but generally, it'll be the big banks and the big institutions that'll run things. Uh, you'll be trading Bitcoin and Ether on a derivative of NASDAQ or the you know, commodities exchange, depending on where it ends up. Um, but you're then going to see blockchain based technologies be applied to whether it's gaming in the metaverse, uh, whether it is uh, around identity management, healthcare, data management, uh, title management, uh, all sorts of things that are non financial, um, but just as important and even much bigger markets. And that's where I think the opportunities in blockchain lie. And then we have this whole area of spatial technology, which Apple has now put on the map firmly with their Vision Pro product, where you will, there is a huge need for metaverse type products and technologies. Um, and AI also creates a need for this because how are these intelligent agents going to transact with each other? How are you going to have an uh, inalterable record of what they're doing? It's got to be blockchain based. So all of these things are actually just positives, net positives for blockchain. So uh, I'm very optimistic, as I think you can hear in my voice. Um, and I think, yes, this was a regulatory hurdle. And maybe I'm just old <laughs> and have been through this so many times before. I remember in the Internet, oh, it's only for porn and drug dealing. You know, it, it's listen, we'll get through this. And yeah, I know people spent a lot of hours, a lot of money and potentially put all sorts of things at risk to build businesses. And, you know, right now we're in the depths of a regulatory winter, which is causing it to be very hard to raise capital and move your projects forward, but stick with it. You know, learning how to survive in this environment will give you the metal in your personality and your business sense that will make it able for you to survive the next crisis when that happens. The one thing that I always have to teach new entrepreneurs is that you are your skill set as an entrepreneur is formed by the crises not by your successes the more crises you survive the better an entrepreneur you're going to be and so if you make it through this period of time you have a much higher likelihood of success and oh by the way venture capitalists are going to want to invest in your projects because hell you survived that winter i know you'll make it through whatever crisis 
you face going forward. I mean, there's so much I could say off the back of that, but like, why bother, right? Let, let's let's end on that note. It's a very inspirational way to close off for founders, as you know, big part of the audience. Fred, been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for your time, perspective, and um, I, I know founders would have really enjoyed listening to this. Thank you very much. Happy to come back anytime and share more. 